This is Policy, Guns and Money, the SB podcast. Welcome to another episode of Policy, Guns and Money. I'm your host, Kelly Smith. This week, Dr. Jake Wallace of ASPE's International Cyber Centre speaks with research intern Albert Zhang about their recent research on COVID disinformation and social media manipulation. Then we hear from Julia Butler as she speaks with research interns Daria Imkambado and Tracy Beattie about the potential impacts of a large COVID-19 outbreak in conflict-ridden Yemen and Myanmar. But first, we hear from ASPE's Dr. Huang Li Thu speaking with Australia's ambassador to Vietnam, Ms. Robin Mudi, about the situation on the ground in Vietnam and the lessons to be learned from the country's response to COVID-19. Hello, I'm Dr. Hong Le Thu, Senior Analyst at ASPE. Today, I'm honoured to be joined by Australia's Ambassador to Vietnam, Her Excellency Robin Moody, to talk about Vietnam's response to COVID-19. Ambassador Moody is a career diplomat. She's previously served in overseas of uh, Australian High Commission in Sri Lanka and Maldives as a Deputy Permanent Representative to United Nations in Geneva, uh, as well as the mission in New York. Ambassador, thank you very much uh, for being with us. Uh, Vietnam's response to COVID-19 pandemic has been quite formidable. It was one of the first countries outside of China that had noted coronavirus cases. Yet after three months and zero deaths to date uh, and under 300 cases in a country that uh, reaches uh, nearly 100 million population and very densely populated, it's quite an achievement. I'm sure our listeners would like to learn how has Vietnam managed to do that and how does it look like from your perspective being in Hanoi? Well, thanks very much for having me and um, I'm delighted to talk about Vietnam's experience with COVID because I agree with you, it's been extremely impressive and um, we have been uh, consistently very impressed with the way they've responded. Um, so I might just start with a little bit of scene setting um, here in Hanoi. Um, obviously, none of us have had um, the beginning to 2020 that we were expecting and for us with Vietnam taking on the chair of ASEAN this year, we had a really busy year planned. And just as the first case of COVID appeared, we were gearing up for a round of really busy engagement in the coming months that was going to set the tone for the rest of the year. So um, the country closed down, as you would probably know, for the pet holiday in late January, as it always does, and the streets emptied and people went home for the holidays. At that point, there were only a handful of, ca- of cases. But from then on, it really seemed that things never really got back to normal here. And for around about two months, the streets of their own volition were very quiet. People voluntarily stayed at home. And it almost felt as if Tet had never ended here in, in Vietnam. And at the same time, um, our work at the embassies had to pivot very quickly towards responding to the COVID situation. So obviously, in the first instance, we had to first look at safety and security of Australians in Vietnam. And there were many Australians who were caught up in the corona situation. They were being quarantined at hotels or in Vietnamese facilities. And so our focus really was on supporting them and assisting them to find safe routes back to Australia. So very, very busy period at the beginning of the year. We're still continuing with that work, but the number of Australians who remain in Vietnam who want to return home has really reduced. So um, while we're continuing to try and find safe routes home for them, the focus has started to go off that work. 
So that's really um, set the tone for a year that felt very different to what we're expecting. But really, um, fortunately for us, um, we've been able to continue a lot of our regular engagement with our Vietnamese partners. And that's because we've got such a deep and long-standing partnership with the country. And so throughout the period of the corona crisis, we've been able to use those channels of communication to share our experiences and our lessons learned um, with our Vietnamese partners and also to position ourselves to return to a more normal sort of engagement as soon as the situation allows us to do so. And one of the really heartening things for me has been that the nature of our relationship with Vietnam is so close and so strong that despite having to move to remote work and do a lot of our work online and maintain social distancing, we have not seen any effect on the depth of our engagement with our partners. So um, I think the very effective response that Vietnam has had has allowed us to continue that um, that engagement and that will stand us in really good stead for the rest of the year. So um, just as a sort of a theme setter, um, you know, our lives here have been changed out of almost all recognition in the last few months, but it's been extremely busy, very varied, um, obviously never a dull moment. But there has been a reassuring sense that our relationship with Vietnam is continuing despite the um, considerable disruption of COVID. So that's um, pretty much where we stand at the moment. I think, yes, the the job of uh, DFAD in general, but uh, your mission in Vietnam has been really uh, well recognised. I follow your work on social media and I know that you've been on constant communication with the Australian community in Vietnam, but you also convey uh, um, regular messages uh, in Vietnamese to the Vietnam communities. Um, and I think it is a quite a challenging uh, moment for diplomats to work uh, remotely and uh, through online rather than in many uh, planned activities around the ASEAN chair uh, of 2020. So tell us how uh, the remote work has worked out for you and have you uh, come back gradually to the regular work as I know that Vietnam is, has eased its social distancing uh, um, restrictions on 23rd of, of uh, April and um, today and, and the May weekend it's going to be a big weekend, uh, are the activities coming back to normal? Yeah, no thanks. It's a, it's a good question because the nature of our work has had to change along with everybody else in the world and one of the really important things for me in the early stages and for the embassy was to maintain strong communication with our community here on the ground and as I mentioned earlier, we had a lot of consular work that we had to do to support Australians. Um, just by way of example, we have assisted directly in repatriating over 200 Australians from Vietnam. Many more have made their own way back. We've also responded to close to 2,000 requests for assistance related to COVID-19 through our consular team. But obviously, we've had to do a lot of that remotely. And so the social media um, has become really important in the way we've communicated with the community. And I thought it was very important that I maintained a strong presence and um, clear communication with people and maintain that outreach throughout the process. And um, I'm very pleased that that's been well received by the community. And of course, it's been great to be able to convey some of that messaging in Vietnamese as well so that we can reach a wider audience. But it has been a challenge, I think, for anyone um, engaged in any profession, and including in diplomacy, to move to, away from that regular face-to-face contact you have with your best contacts to doing it all remotely. But as I said earlier, uh, we've been very fortunate here because we have such strong ties and such good communication with so many people that it's been a, a almost felt like a natural transition. We've all made the change together. So the remote work, I guess, like everybody in the world, we're finding it, it is a, it's a 
in business. And I think engaging through um, online platforms takes a lot more energy and a lot more um, focus than perhaps engaging face-to-face. And, of course, you don't have all those visual clues and um, the ability to form those natural, more relaxed engagements with people. Nevertheless, it's been working very well for us here and um, we'll continue it as long as we need to. Part of our remote work approach, uh, we've drawn down staff in the embassy and we've also... um, move to a remote work arrangement to keep two teams quite separate from each other. And that was a contingency against uh, any possible infection. Um, We wanted to make sure that the embassy could maintain operations smoothly, um, even if we were unfortunate to have an infection case, which obviously, very fortunately, has not been the case for us. But we'll maintain that as long as we need to. And so in answer to your question about returning to normal work, at the moment, despite the fact that things are going so well and despite the fact that measures have been eased, we feel it's really important to continue a cautious approach um, so that we don't jeopardise all of the good work that Vietnam has done to date. And I think the COVID has really had transformative uh, role in um, the workforce, but also diplomacy for Vietnam as a chair of art. And I think it's been challenging to transform all those diplomatic regular activities and then very much the value of contact and consultations and informal meetings into the online platform. Obviously, a lot of activities have been uh, cancelled or postponed, but I think Vietnam is uh, doing quite a good job in terms of moving a lot of uh, those consultations on an online platform, including meetings, uh, uh, the theme of pandemic, discussing the issues related to pandemic. Yeah, it has. Um, and, you know, I think, as I said earlier, Vietnam's moved with the rest of the world into this new way of engagement. And uh, I would agree that it has um, a great determination to continue its ASEAN year as much as it can. And uh, we're working with it to encourage um, the most flexible approach possible so that the calendar can continue um, as far as is possible. But at the moment, it's all a little bit unknown, as with so many other things. And so we're just maintaining close engagement with Vietnam as it works through the best way forward for the rest of the year. So it is remarkable that Vietnam has uh, kept the cases up until today. I think it's noted uh, some 20, uh, 270 cases and zero deaths. Um, it's, uh, a lot of Western media ask uh, the accuracy of that statistic. What is your view, Ambassador? Yeah, I mean, it is a remarkable um, performance by Vietnam with only 270 cases, of which only 48 are active. And that means 222 people have already recovered and there are no recorded deaths. And this is in a population of 95 million. So it is a remarkable achievement. I've heard, obviously, the questions about um, figures that have come around uh, Vietnam and many other countries, but we see no reason to question the figures that we're being given. One of the things that has really struck uh, many of us about Vietnam's response has been that it has been extremely transparent and forward-leaning in the way it's shared information about the crisis. And I would judge that the figures that we are hearing are reflecting what's going on in the country at the moment. I'm glad to hear also that um, the social distancing has not uh, had any impact on the Australia-Vietnam relations, but uh, as you said, it actually reveals much the depth uh, and trust between the nations. So unlike many neighbouring countries that are struggling with uh, the uh, adequate response to the COVID-19, Vietnam has been doing uh, relatively well. Ambassador, what are some key factors that have contributed to such an effective response? Well, I think that um, Vietnam has responded amazingly well and we've been very impressed with, with its response all the way through this crisis. I would say that there are several factors at play here. The first is that Vietnam acted very early 
its experiences dealing with previous public health epidemics, I think, stood the country in very good stead. And in particular, the government and the people's experience dealing with the SARS epidemic in 2003 and other outbreaks meant that they had a really good understanding here of the potential impact of such a crisis and the need for swift action. And as early as January, Prime Minister Nguyen Phuong Phuc had declared war on the virus and he set up a national steering committee. The second thing um, that really has struck us is that Vietnam has adopted a very proactive approach. From the very beginning, it's adopted extensive contact tracing, robust mandatory quarantine and self-isolation measures, travel and border restrictions, and most recently, um, a three-week nationwide social distancing campaign. The thing that really struck us about all of this was that everything it did was evidence-based. It responded to cases and contacts and then it acted to contain these. So all the way through, there's been a clear and transparent logic in the government's response and this has really built public confidence. The final thing um, that really struck us was the strong social awareness and public health campaign that, again, started very early. And this generated a strong shared sense of national unity and cohesion. So we saw things like cartoon programs for kids on TV, a lot of posters, songs, um, sharing of health information. And even now, um, three or months into the crisis, we still get a, a message from the Ministry of Health every time we make a phone call reminding us to take care around coronavirus. So underpinning all of this from a personal perspective and based on my long association with Vietnam, which stretches back over 25 years, I'd attribute the effectiveness of what the government has done to the broad national characteristics of Vietnam and the Vietnamese people. And I'd point in particular to things like determination, their very strategic approach to issues and their resilience. There's also a really strong national loyalty and a collective spirit that is very evident here in Vietnam. And during the social distancing period and even before that, there was a strong shared sense of endeavour and a real determination to support the country's fight against corona. And finally, um, I'm sure you'd be aware as well, there's a really strong sense of self-belief here um, in Vietnam as a country and in the Vietnamese as a people. They know that they can tackle challenges and succeed, and they're very determined to do that. And one of the things that has really struck me coming back to this country after a 25-year break has been the amazing trajectory of its economic growth over that period, and I think that's testament to that self-belief and that shared sense of purpose. So I think all of those things have come together and really um, created quite a unique approach to the COVID situation, which, as you say, has been really successful. Quite a successful combination of decisive and early response from the government, but also responsiveness and uh, proactiveness of the society. And Ambassador, how has Australian response to the COVID-19 being perceived in Vietnam? Well, my impression is that um, Australia's response to COVID-19 has been viewed very positively um, here. Many of my Vietnamese counterparts have commented on the Australian government's comprehensive response to the crisis and the way we've carefully balanced our economic, social and health measures. And they've also been full of praise for our high-quality research, um, scientific efforts and our modelling capabilities. And in particular, the contribution that our scientists have made to global research on the coronavirus. So I've always seen Australians and Vietnamese as very alike in their pragmatic, determined, can-do approach to life. And these characteristics um, show through at the national and state level as well. So just as we have admired the robust and focused approach which Vietnam's taken to the COVID challenge, I think Vietnam has looked at us as a fellow traveller with a shared approach and a trusted partner throughout this crisis. 
So obviously the situation is far from over, um, but we do have a strong shared understanding and a shared commitment to both tackling coronavirus successfully and to the future of our relationship. And so I think that we'll continue to weather this storm together very effectively. Amid all the very green news about coronavirus crisis globally, it is very encouraging to see that the two strategic partners, Vietnam and Australia, are doing both well and are uh, willing to share their best practices uh, and uh, going towards the long recovery ahead of us. Thank you again, Ambassador, for sharing your insights with us. Thanks very much for this opportunity. Next, we hear from Jake and Albert about disinformation and social media manipulation taking place throughout the COVID crisis. Albert, we've done some really interesting work around COVID-19 disinformation. We've been doing some analysis of various suspicious networks on Twitter. So some of that activity has been quite overt and has been clearly state-directed. But you've also been looking at some more obscure activity by uh, a range of troll networks around particular interests. So I think let's try and um, dig into that topic a little and explore the range of actors, what their interests are, what they're trying to achieve, and how they're how they're using Western social media platforms to uh, serve their um, respective ends. That's right. Thanks, Jake. No, absolutely. Um... For at least for the last few years, um, a lot of the disinformation among social media has been sort of state-driven. But um, at least over the last few months, we've sort of noticed some other actors which aren't necessarily state-driven, but maybe state-aligned. So recently, Elise and I published a report looking at pro-Chinese trolls um, targeting sort of tensions between Taiwan and the World Health Organization. So what we sort of saw in that campaign was uh, accounts which were pretending to be the Western media, such as the Wall Street Journal or Radio Free Asia, which is a US-backed um, radio network as well. And what these trolls were doing were mimicking, trolling these accounts to try and sort of cause confusion, I guess, across Twitter. Um, so where, where I first noticed this campaign that sort of began was back in April 9th. These accounts started tweeting these apologies on behalf of Taiwanese citizens. So these, these apologies were in traditional Chinese characters, which, which is what the language, which, which is what the characters are used in Taiwan. Um, but prior to that sort of tweet, um, all these accounts were using simplified Chinese characters prior to that. So that was some suspicious activity, some suspicious behavior as well. And then what we sort of noticed was over that sort of period of about 12 hours was this huge group of um, accounts, about 65 accounts, that were tweeting this apology, pretending to be Taiwanese citizens, basically. So this example of the, far, of the troll network is an example of many other different actors as well. We're also interested in looking at the Exit campaign, which is driven largely by Iranian-associated accounts. But we, I've also noticed Venezuelan state media, Chinese trolls as well, is jumping on board of this um, campaign to um, get California independence from America. Other actors include sort of far right. They're busy sort of pushing the narratives that sort of benefit their own ideology, as well as conspiracy theorists like QAnon um, and um, other grifters who are looking for the profit in the coronavirus pandemic era as well. Jake, do you want to talk some about the um, sort of the techniques 
and the ways we've sort of been analyzing the social media data. Yeah, I mean, I think um, what's really interesting here is this kind of synergy we're seeing between this this range of actors from um, Chinese diplomats who are using disinformation and they're clearly using disinformation um, that is targeted at conspiracy theory networks and uh, we're also seeing the kind of activity that you're identifying, the, the, the sort of patriotic trolling that aligns with state interests. So there's this apparent alignment in interests that we can identify using the various techniques that um, we've deployed to investigate these really large data sets. And I think w- what's been interesting is the various methodologies that we've used to explore this space. So in particular, we've been doing a lot of work with artificial intelligence and machine learning to draw insets out of really large social media data sets so we can extract URLs, we can extract hashtags. So we get a sense of the kind of focus of the activity, what kind of topics they're talking about, what kind of online environments they're trying to shift audiences towards. And that really helps us understand the kind of tactics that uh, different actors deploy. I think that some of the approaches that you've been using um, to explore social media data sets are really useful in terms of the toolkit that we bring to the table. So network analysis, the data mining that that you've been doing, Albert, around um, large Twitter hashtag-driven activity. Uh, All of that plays into the kind of methodologies that we have to use in order to make some sense out of this really this morass of, of data because otherwise yeah. we can we can get very rough and ready about the conclusions that we can draw and we can do that at a surface level but if we want to really drive policy recommendations and if we want to play a part in um, helping industry to understand how they can respond to these kinds of bad actors we need some really uh, nuanced analysis and i think these techniques help us in that context. And I guess what I found useful in terms of the analysis and the data mining of Twitter um, is that there's just um, so much going on and um, there's a lot of interactions and just being able to sort of uh, imagine and then visualize um, all that information, um, I found quite useful to sort of um, defer to those techniques such as the network analysis, as well as just some of the more statistical um, summaries just to getting your head around what's going on, what are the behaviors, um, as well as identifying trends. So that way we are then able to sort of get a bit of picture about what's happening on across social media and um, hopefully identifying sort of the state and um, non-state actors and what their interests are really. I think, and that's really crucial when we talk about China's online activity. I think we've seen a lot of coverage recently that's pointing to Chinese disinformation and state assuming that it's state-driven. And I think that uh, there are a whole range of demographics in the social media space. Many of them are driven by a sense of nationalism, patriotism. So I think we, we need to be cautious about labeling all disinformation, misinformation, activity at scale uh, as state-directed. That, that's that's really critical, I think. And um, it really helps policymakers if we can be quite precise about who's driving particular strands of activity. And the only way we can do that when we're looking at data 
at this scale is by using these kinds of techniques like artificial intelligence, like network analysis, to drive the insights that we've um, published in the last couple of disinformation reports? Um, so I guess what I'm looking um, to in the future, or the new social in the future, uh, that what the actors might potentially be being involved in. So currently, definitely look towards America um, with their election coming in November um, and keeping track of the activity there in sense of um, this Calexit campaign, but also a lot of their disinformation um, about COVID-19 internally. And, you know, I'd be anticipating state actors or non-state actors to jump on board and capitalise on sort of the disability, the, the disability um, as well as the uncertainty um, in these times to push their agendas. So is there anything that you're um, sort of keeping your eye on? I think well, we we know that there's a whole range of state-driven activity. Multiple states are, are playing in this space. I think particular focus, in part driven by the response to COVID-19, is this alignment, the, the alignment that we've mentioned already, these kinds of targeting of networks that are interested in conspiracy theories, that are interested in more extreme ideas that are on the fringe of the political spectrum. And the targeting of those networks by state actors, I think, is particularly important because I think they're about, those networks are a vulnerable space. They're a vulnerability in terms of our, our online discourse. And I think state actors are quite purposefully targeting them. So I think that's something that we'll keep an eye on in the in the short term. That's really interesting, Jake, and I definitely agree in, in terms of um, that's where we need to be looking. I'm sure Ashby will be doing a lot of analysis over the next few months in that area. Thanks for chatting with me, Jake. Thanks, Albert. Finally, Aspie's Professional Development Coordinator, Julia, speaks with research interns Daria and Tracy about the intersection of conflict and crisis and the potential impacts of a large COVID outbreak in conflict-ridden Yemen and Myanmar. Thanks, Tracy and Daria, for joining me today. So today we're going to talk about what happens when crisis meets conflict, with a particular focus on Myanmar and Yemen with the given uh, novel coronavirus. Tracy, you have some research history with Myanmar, and Daria, you've researched the situation in Yemen. So I look forward to hearing your thoughts uh, based on your research today. When we were discussing this segment, I think we all agreed that these are two conflict zones which are often overlooked by mainstream media. So to start us off, for those of us who aren't overly familiar with the regions, can each of you please give us a quick contextual overview of the main actors, the catalyst for conflict and what societal life is like? Thank you for the introduction, Julia. Um, I will start talking about Yemen. Um, Yemen is a country that has suffered several internal conflicts for many years between the Houthi rebels and, and the government. The biggest crisis broke out in 2015 when President Hadi called for the intervention of an international coalition, which was led by Saudi Arabia, uh, was supported by many other countries in the region, as well as other Western powers like the US and the UK. And the war has been ongoing until this day. Um, this war has caused many deaths, about more than 100 people um, have died, and it has completely destroyed both the healthcare system and uh, the economy uh, of Yemen. Therefore, it goes without saying that the country is absolutely not ready to face a crisis such as a COVID-19 pand- pandemic. It's clear it's a, it's a really dire situation over in Yemen. Um, Tracy, what can you tell us about Myanmar? 
So the situation is quite similar in Myanmar as well. The country has been suffering from eternal conflicts between the government, communist insurgents and ethnic groups since its independence from the UK in 1948. And these clashes are rooted in the fight for self-determination, autonomy and equal rights by minorities against the Pema majority. After 72 years, it is the world's longest ongoing civil war. So now minority communities are being threatened by both the COVID-19 pandemic and serious human rights violations. We're seeing blocks on humanitarian aid, lack of education, widespread internet shutdowns, as well as war crimes that have led to the mass displacement of more than 350,000 people. Many of those who are now in overcrowded camps with limited access to clean water, sanitation and healthcare. In total, more than 12 million people across Myanmar have been affected by the civil war. The COVID-19 pandemic will further exacerbate the issues that these people are currently facing. Because of the civil war, many of these ethnic groups have ended up with their own independent health systems that are very fragmented and poorly equipped. And even if we look at the broader picture of Myanmar as a whole, the national public health system is very much inadequate to respond to a pandemic of this scale. There are only around, I think, 80 ventilators and 300 ICU beds in the entire country. And Myanmar also has the highest out-of-pocket healthcare costs in the region. So with one third of the population being in poverty, this will definitely deter people from seeking appropriate health care and lead to further unreported spreads of the virus. That's a really concerning situation that you've described there, Tracy. And it's interesting. I didn't realise it was the longest running civil conflict. That's an interesting point. It's clear that both countries were far from prepared for the novel coronavirus. We've seen that in with different contexts and cultures have brought about different responses to this pandemic. We need only compare Australia to the United States and New Zealand, arguably very similar societies, to see how these similar societies have had different governmental and societal approaches. Given everything that has already been going on in these uh, conflict zones, what are the ruling parties and society as a whole doing as a response to COVID-19? So for Myanmar, up until mid-March, Aung San Suu Kyi herself has failed to inform the public on the large numbers of globally confirmed cases, while another government spokesperson has said Myanmar will be protected from the pandemic by its lifestyle, diet, and apparently a lack of credit cards in the country. So while Myanmar now claims that it only has 150 confirmed cases, this number would definitely be a lot higher in practice. The Burmese government has said recently as well that it would leave no one behind in the pandemic and there have been containment measures, border closures and distribution of basic necessities like many other countries. But in practice, this means very little for Myanmar's minority groups. Social distancing and hand washing would be the very least of their concerns at the moment when these people in conflict areas have to run away from their houses to seek safety or sourcing water from contaminated wells. So for them, it's really about staying alive for another day. And the government has also rejected calls for ceasefire requests by ethnic groups amid the rising number of cases in the country. Unfortunately, in terms of the displacement camps, there have been no reported cases in Myanmar, but of course, a severe outbreak there would be absolutely disastrous. And and clearly, it's a situation where it's difficult to monitor those cases and to distinguish it from other illnesses. 
I can imagine, Daria, that things aren't much better in Yemen. No, absolutely not. To give a bit uh, more background about the current situation in Yemen, um, according to the World Food Programme, 24 million Yemenis are in need of humanitarian assistance right now. And also more than half of Yemen's health facilities are closed or partially functioning because of war crimes committed by both fighting factions uh, who targeted um, health facilities and uh, healthcare staff. Um, Moreover, people are not really able to implement um, hygienic practices because more than 50% of people in Yemen do not have access to to safe water. The response from the government has been uh, not substantial. So up until today, there has been only one case of COVID-19 reported in the countries, but cases in surrounding countries continue to rise and NGOs and healthcare staff are particularly worried uh, because of the lack of personal protective equipment uh, and the massive shortage of equipment and, and medicines they are they're facing. So the government hasn't really been able to prepare enough locations for isolation at points of entry, which is of particular concern for Yemen, as it is point of passage for migrants from the Horn of Africa to Saudi Arabia, which could further increase the spread of um, the coronavirus. It's certainly concerning given the existing mass migration of people through these countries. With already weak state structures to manage it, it's no wonder that coronavirus has and will continue to have effects on these countries. I think you've both uh, effectively outlined the serious situations these societies are facing. Um, Before we finish today, Dario, I know you've touched on this earlier and Tracy a little bit too. Uh, What has been done by international organisations and foreign states to assist these countries, if at all? Um, So in the case of Yemen, the major concern from international organisations and foreign states is the fact that the conflict hasn't ceased. Therefore, um, armed groups continue to block access to humanitarian aid in many regions of the country. Um, And if this continues to be the case, uh, would the pandemic spread to Yemen? NGOs wouldn't be able to assist the population and provide the much needed uh, ventilators and protected clothing, medicine and, and everything else. So it would be a complete disaster if the conflict doesn't cease immediately. That's really concerning that international organisations are having difficulty providing that humanitarian support. Tracy, how are things in Myanmar? Is it any better? Is it easier for people to reach those in need? I'd probably say it's on par with Yemen. So We have organisations like the World Bank who've approved of a $50 million credit for Myanmar to respond to the virus, and a further $25 million has been provided by other funds, the EU and Australia as well, in the form of cash grants. And we've also seen countries like the United States and China providing medical assistance and equipment to Myanmar. But similarly to Yemen, there's really little room for engagement by other humanitarian organisations due to restricted humanitarian access and blocks imposed by government authorities. Uh, There also has been serious concerns for safety in conflict-stricken regions. So we've seen last week in Myanmar, a WHO aid worker was shot and killed by insurgents while transporting COVID-19 testing equipment through Rakhine State. So situation is not looking too promising at the moment either in Myanmar. It's really such a shame that although there are probably people that are looking to help, that it is difficult to give the help that is needed at this time. 
I think, thank you both for your thoughts today and for sharing your research with us. I think something that we want to highlight for everyone at home is that it's having a very different effect on these countries. We're very privileged in Australia and that in situations of conflict zones, a crisis like coronavirus is only going to exacerbate those underlying issues. That brings us to the end of another episode of Policy Guns and Money. If you'd like to share your thoughts on anything discussed today, please tweet us at aspie underscore org. We'll be back with another episode next week. Thanks for tuning in.